I am joined by Daniel Nielsen, professor of economics at Bard College at Simon's Rock. Dan, great to have you here. Welcome. How are you doing? Hi, Jack. Thanks for having me back. Uh, I'm doing great. Um, it's been a very interesting few days uh, in, in here in the, the financial system and the financial plumbing, money markets, central banking. This is the stuff that I watch. Um, so it's been it's been interesting and, and revealing to see these events of the last few days and figured out a lot of stuff uh, over the last little bit here and, and looking forward to to following it along for the next few days. Absolutely. So you are a student of and a professor of banking panics, financial instability, Minsky moments, and for 98, 99% of the time, very few people in the world are cared about that, except for people such as yourself. Now, right now is a time okay. where people want the knowledge that you have. So I'm, I'm really uh, glad that that you're here. Just start us off. How do you think that this banking panic started? What do you think the root cause of it is? And then we can get on to you know, do you, how long do you think it will last? An important question. I think if we try to make sense of, of the events of the last few days, um, Silicon Valley Bank being being the one that's gotten the most headlines. I think to zoom out a little bit and start with a, a somewhat big picture, the context here is that the Fed's been raising rates uh, for most of a year now. Um, you know, there's a few different ways to understand that, but basically what the Fed is doing is increasing pressure on the financial system. It's making the value of money uh, a little bit greater. That's the, the Fed funds rate and other overnight interest rates has been ticking up three quarters of a point, three quarters of a point, half a point, and so on. Uh, we're now uh, more than five points um, more expensive than it was a year ago for that's the cost of overnight money. So this is a, a way of squeezing the whole financial system by making uh, short-term loans that much more expensive. The effect of that is that everybody's got to take better care of their cash, where when interest rates were zero, you could count on getting uh, overnight money for free, essentially, and now it's got a price again. And so uh, sooner or later, that was bound to start making life difficult for people. And that's what we're seeing now. And the, the banks that are being hit are the ones uh, that were sort of farthest out uh, uh, in terms of risk or in terms of business model or in terms of um, just how they, were, how they were taking care of their, own, of their own finances. So the specific banks that have been hit, you know, you can see that as, as um, idiosyncratic failures, right? Individual institutions making certain mistakes. But at a systemic level, somebody was going to get hurt, hit first, and it was just a question of who. Well, now we know. When people say rising interest rates will crimp the economy, the people who, who are, quote, feel the pain would be borrowers. Oh, I want to refinance my mortgage. I did it at 2.9%, and now mortgage rates are at 7%. I want to you know, borrow money to buy a car. I want to borrow money. It was borrowers who were hurt. I think what's been surprising to many, myself included, is that it was banks who were the first to manifest the the, the damage of rising rates. Because yeah. you think that banks profit when rates are higher; they can make loans at, at new rates. Why is it that rising rates was hurt banks the, the, the more than regular consumers? Yeah, um, it's an inter interesting and important question, and I think actually one that economists ought to ought to do some work on because. Uh, the economics profession is responsible for the the belief that it would be borrowers that would be that would be hit first. The thing is that the Fed is affecting interest rates by pushing through the financial system. Everything the Fed does to raise rates goes through the financial system first. They're not guaranteed that the effects will be will make it all the way to to households borrowing on credit cards or mortgages. I think uh, one important piece of context here is that. Uh, by and large, U.S. households, or at least if we look in the aggregate, U.S. households still have a lot of cash. So you can make borrowing more expensive for them, but they have uh, U.S. households still have a fair amount of reserves. That's not to say that everybody is in equally good shape, but, uh, but, but at the systemic level, it wasn't U.S. households borrowing that was the first to feel this, first to feel this squeeze. Uh, it's a limitation of the economic, of the perspective of orthodox economics um, that has a lot of trouble seeing the financial system. And, and I, I owe my understanding of it to several places, including to, to Minsky. Um, exactly why it came up in these specific banks, um, you know, we can, we can see by looking at their individual 
at their individual situations. And maybe we can get into that uh, as we go. Uh, definitely, Dan, you are an expert on The Economist, Hyman Minsky. You, you wrote the book on it. There we go. We got the book right there, uh, the Minsky. And as I referenced uh, earlier, Dan, everyone wants to know about the Minsky moment. This is the uh, head, of, um, the front page of Bloomberg this morning. What is a Minsky moment and why are fears of one mounting? So uh, here I at Four Guns and, and listeners, very lucky that we've got an expert on Minsky and a Minsky moment. So what is a Minsky moment? Sure. What about this current situation might qualify for a Minsky moment? And then what are your thoughts? Does this qualify? Yeah, sure. It definitely qualifies. I'm, I, um, people like to talk about the Minsky moment. I think about Minsky all the time, not just, uh, not just at, at one moment, you know. Um, but, it, but there's certainly something meaningful behind the phrase. And, and people want to know about Minsky. And, and as you say, I, I wrote a book, uh, not the only book on Minsky, to be sure. Um, but I am fond of mine. Um, the, you know, what Minsky's unique perspective was, and he built this over uh, half a century, really, of, of writing um, academic economics, but also he wrote um, articles for newspapers, popular press, that kind of thing. Um, Minsky said, kind of uniquely, had an understanding of the financial system as a network of payments, uh, a network of payments now at this moment and stretching out into the future at certain moments, uh, at certain moments down the line, tomorrow, a week from now, a year from now, a decade from now. And all of these participants in the financial system from individual households on their credit cards or their mortgages, all the way up to central banks uh, managing the, the global flow of dollars and, and other currencies around the world are constantly managing these payments. They've got money coming in, they've got money going out, and they're trying to honor their debts, to pay their debts on, on time. So Minsky thought a lot over the course of the second half of the 20th century, there was a, kind of a series of, of financial crises, um, and, and he found a, a sort of a mechanism or a dynamics by which, uh, you know, you could see that these crises were all versions of the same thing, not identical at all, but versions of the same thing. And what that thing is, basically, is that, um, is that first somebody somewhere in the economic system starts to have a little bit of trouble paying their debts. And that happens every day. But when the system is stable, one person has some trouble and then they go bankrupt and then things kind of return to normal. When the system is unstable, one person has trouble, but then somebody else has trouble and then somebody else has trouble. And sooner or later, the whole system is, uh, is, is you got bankruptcies at the top levels of the financial system. You got multi, multi hundreds of billions of dollars worth of, of bailouts. You got new programs on the Fed's balance sheet. Uh, all kinds of things. So Minsky was always thinking about 1929 to 1933 and, and what had happened during the bank failures around the Great Depression. When I wrote my book uh, following the 2008 crisis, I said, hey, look, Minsky's ideas are pretty relevant here, but he didn't, he didn't live to see the particular technologies, the particular securitization techniques, uh, the way markets had changed between his death in 96 until 2008 when that crisis happened. So we can use his ideas, but also we have to keep those ideas up to date. They don't do that by themselves. And Minsky's work by itself doesn't actually speak to, the, to, to every set of circumstances. So it's on, it's on us, and I try to do this work, and there are plenty of other people who, who I'm working alongside. Um, it's on us to look at the particular circumstances of each new uh, event, financial crisis, and understand what's the same as what we've seen before, what might be a little bit new, uh, and, and, and try to make sense of it all. And we've got plenty of, uh, plenty of familiarity in this crisis. We've got big banks, uh, we've got payment troubles, we're seeing problems in short-term uh, in, in short lending markets, um, we're seeing big price moves in, in kind of predictable places, but also the dynamics by which it's happening are to some extent new. Silicon Valley Bank, um, you know, it's, it's business model, very questionable in certain ways, but also not exactly a repetition of anything we had seen before. So there's always a little bit of new and a little bit of old. So if we were to uh, simplify things to just a simple image, would a series of dominoes where domino A falls with domino B falls, with, yeah. would that be somewhat apt to describe a Minsky moment? Sure. I like, I like that. And that's the picture that, that we chose for the cover of my book for exactly <laughs> that reason. Um, the, the, quest, the thing I might add to that picture, right, if, you're, if we're using our imaginations here, is that uh, 
sometimes those dominoes kind of get bigger and bigger, right? And you hit one and it, and it, and it keeps knocking bigger and bigger dominoes over. And sometimes, uh, you know, you put a little space in the, in the chain of dominoes and it stops when you get to a certain point. So that's the difference between an unstable financial situation where, where it kind of keeps getting bigger and we don't know where it's going to stop, which is what we saw in September of 2008. And uh, a more modest crisis that, that maybe goes on for a couple of weeks and then, and then dies out. Um, hard, to, hard to predict what's going to happen because during a crisis, that's when we discover what people have been up to. That's when we discover what dodgy financial structures are out there we're not going to know until it all breaks. So, so a little hard to predict what will happen next. Um, but, but kind of one of those two, one of those two possibilities. And right now we're in the thick of it. So we're waiting to discover which one it's going to be. Right. So in March of 2008, Bear Stearns fall, so, you know, a midsize investment bank. Then in uh, August and you know, later September, Lehman Brothers fails. Then AIG fails. Then the government has to Got, got involved, determined it had to get involved. The losses were too big. The dominoes were, were, were too big. Where do you think we are now? How big of a domino is Silicon Valley Bank? Is it is the, the domino still appropriate? I mean, is this just a one-off event? Uh, now we have signature bank following. How systemic is that? And the dominoes down the chain, do you think those will get triggered? And how big will those be? Yeah. At the moment, I don't, I don't think there's any particular reason to think that the big money center uh, New York banks are likely to follow um, Silicon Valley Bank. I don't think at this moment there's not much reason to think that that is what is going to happen next. The big underlying problem um, is different than in 2008, and I'm not sure that that we've sort of seen all of the dimensions of it. But basically, it's it's there's a, there's a in the banking system as a whole there's a big pool of securities that are carried on the books of the banks in their accounting completely legally, completely according to accounting standards, those securities are carried at a price which is above the price that those securities will fetch in the, in the market right now if you have to sell them. So that problem is big, has been estimated at over $600 billion. Um, I think those numbers come directly out of banks' filings, so financial filings, so I think that's a, that's a reasonable estimate. Um, and that problem is is sitting out there and it has not been resolved by the events of the last few days. But whether or not it will trigger a widespread financial crisis uh, is is difficult to say and, and we're gonna see. At this moment, I don't see that there's much reason to think that this is headed towards anything like 2008. And why do you say that? Uh, I say that because the all of the tremors that we've seen so far are in deposit flight from uh, small regional banks like uh, like Silicon Valley Bank or Signature Bank, uh, First Republic, into the big money center banks, and they're not struggling right now to absorb those uh, to absorb those deposits. The symptoms we're seeing are the, the some of these smaller banks. And I say regional banks, but it's not only it's not only about geographic region, but but specialized banks in one way or another. Um, a lot of exposure to tech and crypto has been relevant these last uh, couple of weeks. Um, at the moment, those deposits are actually moving pretty smoothly through the system uh, into the big banks, and the big banks are still all working together, right? You saw you saw uh, a, a significant number of banks put in a significant amount of money to try to bail out First Republic. Maybe that didn't succeed. We're going to find out in the next couple of days. Uh, but they still trust each other, right? They're still all at the table together. When things broke down in in 2008, the big banks ceased uh, ceased to lend to one another. And that was how you knew that the crisis had reached the very center of the of the financial system. Right. So there are two differences. One is that you just referenced it. In 2008, banks lent to each other. And if party A was lending to party B and party B went down, that would impact party A. Whereas mm -hmm. now, the banks are not depositing any in each other. It is you know individuals and, and businesses who are withdrawing their money. And it's going from, from bank A to bank B, and that itself may be a problem. And the second issue, I, I suppose, is that the losses in 2008 were from credit risk, bad loans, subprime mortgages, and packaged into uh, uh, specious financial products. Whereas now the losses are due to interest rate risk. The Federal Reserve has raised interest rates. And that is the source that these securities are, are now less uh, the value that, than the value at which they bought them. Uh, are those primarily the, the reasons why are there, are there other reasons that I'm missing? Um, uh, I think the, 
the this big the big unrealized loss on the securities portfolio that seems to be the big systemic uh, issue that's that's at scale, right? That number is the the unrealized losses are something like six hundred billion dollars, and so um, and so that's a you know systemically meaningful number, right? That that registers on the scale of of the banking the balance sheet of the banking system as a whole. Um, it's pretty different from the from the uncertainty surrounding the subprime mortgage crisis because a lot of you know a lot of what ha was happening there was complexity that the securities were very complex and you had different financial products that were sort of strung together also in complex ways and so at the height of the crisis it was actually difficult to even estimate what the level of losses was going to be because the, there was so much opacity and complexity in the financial structures themselves so it even took a while just to figure out who owed how much to whom and how big the loss might be if those if if people didn't pay whereas in the current situation the number is big but i'm not sure that there's all that much complexity to it uh it's just a big number and and you know whether it triggers a a, a wider systemic run or not um is that's a pretty contingent question that really depends on what happens next what do you think happens next I think there's kind of a couple ways it could go. The the Fed has intervened uh, over the last week in a couple of ways. Uh, the Fed is offering financing through the bank term finance program. It's small for the moment, but significant. Um, it's a way to allow banks to get cash now without taking without re realizing the losses on their securities portfolios. Um, they are providing the Fed is providing up to twenty five billion dollars now. Either that could, so one way this goes, that symbolic gesture is enough to buy a few weeks and then things calm down and we kind of go back to business as usual. And, and maybe that could get us through in the middle of the year, even into the fall. Um, or another way it could go is it turns out that 25 billion is not enough and the Fed, you know, adds a zero to that number. All of a sudden it's 250 billion and that's a pretty big, a pretty big chunk of, of balance sheet that the Fed would be offering. Um, and so, so that's the this, this circumstance where, you know, the crisis continues uh, to, to escalate. Um, I think the Fed's interventions have been about buying time. And uh, there's probably a lot of backroom communication occurring now in the, in the time that's been bought. Uh, and, and finding uh, stabilizing ways to move forward, maybe wrapping up a couple banks here and there, maybe putting in place um, financing guarantees, maybe allowing a certain number of depositors to move out of deposits, bank deposits and move into money market funds might allow uh, a little flexibility. But kind of just giving everybody time to, to, to reposition um, could, be, could be enough to buy some time for the whole banking system. Um, at the moment, uh, as of today, we're talking on Tuesday, uh, Fed is meeting now. So at the moment, I'm not seeing signs yet that any bigger entity is uh has been as is called called into question on the in in entering into some kind of liquidity crisis you know we saw credit suisse over the last few days which is big and and systemically significant uh, because of their securities dealing functions but um but but credit suisse has been kind of a mess for a couple of years so um so i wouldn't draw a lot of conclusions from that so a simple reason is to look at interest rate risk. Oh, all these banks have securities, uh, um, agency mortgage-backed securities that lose value as interest rates rise, and the rate at which they lose value increases. You know their uh, negative convexity. Um, but what about Credit Suisse? Because Credit Suisse, I understand they have a lot of loans. There may be some uh, uh, sort of on a, on a shaky ground there. You know, clients have been withdrawing money for years, but interest rate risk. You know. The Swiss National Bank did not has not raised interest rates to where the Fed has raised them. Uh, European mortgages they did they don't really have a thirty year fixed mortgage, um, you know, like they do in the states. Why is it that does the does the uh, fall of uh, Credit Suisse and the fact that it had to be taken over by its rival UBS, which you know, is across the park from, across the street from it uh, in Switzerland, does that indicate that it could be more than just a, a few regional banks mishandling their interest rate risk management? I think it could. I think it could. We have to remember. I mean, uh, Credit Suisse has been involved in a series of in a series of scandals going back uh, some time now, even before uh, even before interest rates started to come up. 
um, Archegos was one that yep. I wrote about. Greensill, what they were involved in that. So they give the impression of kind of uh, of kind of having thrown risk management out the window and being willing to to work with anybody and take on any kind of deal uh, to 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 get the fees. So and that's been widely known. And and Credit Suisse has been in trouble for some time. Why is it happening right at this moment? Uh, that I think is is part of your question. Why is this happening right now at the same time as Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic and and these other things? Um, I think that's the, the the path by which maybe there is some chance that this becomes a more systemic issue, right? And you could say it like this, you know, Silicon Valley Bank was way out on a limb and, uh, and, and something happened to them over the last couple of weeks where they were losing deposits fast and that was enough to somehow trigger the Fed to, to intervene, to protect all their depositors. The bank is gone, management is gone, but the depositors all got saved. Now that was enough to get everybody thinking hard about the whole banking system. And now Credit Suisse was the, was the farthest out on a limb in a different way uh, out of the big banks, the big systemic banks. So the $600 billion securities overhang, that's the banking system as a whole and that, and that some of that will fall on, on the bigger banks. So I think the question now is, uh, you know, can the, the community of depositors, the worldwide, all of the people worldwide who have bank deposits, are they gonna become comfortable with uh, where the banks are at and banks' ability to pay their deposits when demanded, despite this unrealized loss on securities that's sitting out there? Or are they gonna continue to ask questions about more and more banks and continue to pull deposits out, try to move into ever more money-like uh, assets to the extent where maybe the big banks all of a sudden don't trust each other anymore and, and the system uh, breaks down. So I guess the connection I would make between Credit Suisse and Silicon Valley Bank is that the, in different ways, they're both kind of out on a limb, right? They were, they were risky. They, were, they had a kind of extreme business model. They, they showed a pretty high tolerance for risk, unwisely so in retrospect in both cases. But, but the, the dynamics affecting the, 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 the the, their balance sheets really, I would say, were pretty different. So I, I'm, I, it's hard to draw a conclusion about what happens next from either of those. Now, granted, if we see another big bank um, coming, into, coming into question, then I think the story changes fast. But I don't see that just yet. Thank you. That, that makes sense. So the Federal Reserve rolled out its BTFP. So banks can use that to access capital. They also have the, the discount window which is you know always open open to banks but it's uh, not a one year term loan so because of both or either of these facilities the federal reserve's balance sheet which has been steadily declining since the onset of quantitative tightening last year has recently ticked up and this is leading some to say oh quantitative easing is back quantitative tightening is over you see gold in, gold is catching a bit uh, bitcoin is up you know, 30% uh, you know you know over the past week or two so uh, while, while I just said that we could have put up a, a chart of the Fed's balance sheet, which shows the sort of simple level, which uh, people would see. But now I want to show um, from, from your blog, Soon Parted, the composition and the rate of change of the Fed's balance sheet. So what are we looking here? Uh, sure. What is the, when people see this, the Fed's balance sheet and it's ticked up, why is that ticked up? Is that the discount window, the BTFP? Tell us what's going on. Sure. Yep. <clears throat> Um, yeah, this picture, uh, this is one that I keep up to date and I share this a lot on Soon Parted. Um, what this is showing is week-to-week uh, -week flows of balance sheet quantities on the Federal Reserve balance sheet. Um, I look at the, the data from, that the Fed puts out and I group those flows into these categories. So I have to lump some things together to get, to get it to look like this. Um, so there's a little bit of judgment involved, but I thought about it a lot and I'm pretty sure it gives a pretty good reflection of what's going on. So the way you read this is there's two panels. The top panel is assets, the bottom panel is liabilities. Um, each there's, there's eight categories here, which in my opinion are the principal uh, divisions of the, of the Fed's balance sheet. The top three are assets, the other five are liabilities. Any number that's pointing outward, meaning up on the top panel or down on the bottom panel, indicates that that, uh, that that balance sheet quantity was expanded during the last week. And anything pointing in means that that quantity contracted during the past week. This uh, particular version of the graph goes back a year, uh, sorry, six months, uh, six months showing week to week changes 
back to back to fall of last year. And so what do you see? On the asset side, you see not a whole lot of movement, but where there's movement, it steps down. And that's quantitative tightening. This is what the Fed has been doing um, for most of a year now is uh, every month they're selling securities, selling uh, treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. Uh, and as you can see from the picture, it's, it's not the same every week, but if you average it over, if you average this into months, what you see is it's actually a pretty smooth pace month to month where that balance sheet is, is contracting. On the liability side, you see a lot, uh, a lot of movement. It's a lot more complex. And, uh, and I, I think that's interesting, maybe, maybe just to, to be noted here to follow all the details is kind of a longer story. But on the liability side, you got some movement between bank deposits, overnight repo from money market funds, um, and, and the treasury's uh, bank account at, at the Fed. So that kind of washes back and forth. Not a lot of systematic movement uh, over the last six months. So that line, the vertical line there is March 10th. That's the vertical gray line uh, right, right towards the end. That's March 10th, which is the day that, uh, that the FDIC moved into Silicon Valley Bank. And then the last week's data, which is um, from uh, last Wednesday, the, the week leading up to last Wednesday, which is, uh, which is what this data measures, shows a big expansion, uh, by comparison, a big expansion in the Fed's balance sheet for one week. That's some about $300 billion week to week. Uh, it's in other assets. And if you go into the details, as you said, it's the uh, it's mostly it's the discount window, primary credit, uh, as it's called on the balance sheet, and a little bit of BTFP bank term funding program, uh, mostly corresponding to an increase in reserve deposits on the part of the US commercial banking system. So uh, so what do we say? Well, first thing to notice is I just want, I want everyone to see that this crisis was enough to touch the Fed's balance sheet in a significant way. This is, uh, it's a discrete change from what has been going on in the Fed's balance sheet over the last um, while. So we're in crisis mode. Um, is it a big crisis or is it a, is it a small crisis? If we took this graph and we went back to September 2008, you would see a different story altogether. Okay, so so I don't want to I don't want to be alarmist, uh, but but you know the central bankers had to wake up and say, all right, well we're going to do something different this week to be sure. Um, is it a well, in terms of the level of the balance sheet, it takes us back to about mid November uh, in terms of you know the Fed's been trying to shrink the balance sheet all this time, and the 300 billion dollar increase uh, this past week takes us back to the scale that the balance sheet was at uh, in November. So setting the quantitative tightening process back by a couple of months. Next question is how quickly do those numbers come back down, right? Uh, the, the discount window spikes up by 300 billion. Is that gonna come back down next week? Maybe, and then the crisis is over, possibly. Or is it gonna stay elevated for a while, in which case you know, uh, there's gonna be more work to do on the part of the central bank? Because you don't want the discount window staying active for a long time. That's supposed to be for short-term liquidity needs. So if it's going to be around for a while, then, then they're going to have to think about it a different way. Hey there. Sorry to interrupt. Announcement. Blockworks is hosting an event called Permissionless in September. It's a crypto event. It's in Austin, Texas. We did Permissionless in 2022. It was the biggest and best DeFi event in the world. And this year, Lightning will be striking twice. Historically, our ticket prices have gone up about 10 times from the day the tickets go live to the day before the event. If you're like me and bad at math, that's 900%. So it might be savvy for attendees to consider buying tickets now rather than later. If you're listening to this and you're saying, hey, Jack, I'm not really into this whole crypto thing. I want to hear about the Fed. I want to hear about the dollar, Bretton Woods, three, four, five. I hear you. I'm not telling you to buy a ticket and the interview will resume momentarily. However, if you are into the crypto thing and permissionless is something you might want to attend, what I'm saying is there's no time like the present because tickets will go up and if history is any guide, prices will go up a ton. Anyway, the link is in the description and you can get an additional 10% off by using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. The uh, bank term funding program allows banks to pledge a lot of securities, a wide array of securities, and get cash. They can get it at face value. Oh, I'm posting this security that's in the market worth $80. You're going to give me $100 for it. And that is at, I think, a one-year index swap plus 10 basis points, so, so you know, somewhat cheap. And then the discount window is 4.75% 
475 basis points. So exactly the same thing right now as the effective upper upper limit on the Fed funds range. Again, that probably will change tomorrow if the Fed reserve um, uh, hikes by, by 25 basis points. So what is the difference uh, between the discount window and the BTFP, bank term funding program, other than the fact that uh, the the this uh, BTFP you can uh, use it for up to one year. I think the big difference is the is that BTFP uh, when you borrow BTFP the collateral is accepted at face value. I believe that that's the the purpose of the program. That is the the way that's the reason it has any effect at all. So both discount window borrowing and BTFP borrowing are securitized. Sorry, are are collateralized, meaning you have to post security. The security that you can post is the same in both cases. It's it's things that the Fed will buy um, for open market operations, meaning treasuries, agency bonds, and agency mortgage-backed securities. You can post those things at either window. Uh, the discount window is a normal program, which always exists, not always used like this, but it's kind of always it's always there, uh, exactly as you said. And and the terms are the terms are public and and known, and it gets used in a small way uh, all the time. Uh, the collateral, when you post collateral at the discount window, it's valued at market price. So to the extent that this problem we're talking about is about securities who, uh, which are being carried on balance sheets above their market price at face value, which is because of the change in interest rates, which is higher than market price, they're not very good at the discount window because, uh, because if you have to post them at the discount window, you just get market price. So you can only, as you said, if the security is worth 80 cents on the dollar, then you can only borrow 80 cents on the dollar. And so there's no benefit to going to the discount window. You could just sell the security and get you could get the same amount for it. So what BTFP does is it recognizes those securities at face value, meaning you can get your whole dollar from them, which is not a price available uh, on the market right now. So now for the moment, that, that program is small. The limit uh, seems to be 25 billion. So for $25 billion worth of securities, banks out there, maybe some of these smaller or medium-sized banks, maybe regional banks can take any securities that they have, which might be, they might be carrying above market value and they can get that full face value of cash for one year right now, which they couldn't do any other way at the moment. Because if you sell them on the market, you're gonna get market price. And if you post them at the discount window, you're gonna get a loan valued at market price. BTFP takes that loss, it moves it onto the Fed's balance sheet, which is uh, not a bad thing to do with it, right? The Fed carries all of its securities at face value, and they're perfectly able to simply hold on to them uh, until they mature. So face value is not is not a bad number to put on them. Other banks may be in that position, but if they get uh, if if they get into liquidity trouble and they have to sell those securities, then all of a sudden they're in they're in trouble. So the B BTFP is one device by which that can be solved. So, thank you. So it sounds like in many ways, if you're a bank, the BTFP is preferable to use than the discount window. And yet there's a chart that we can uh, you know, put up on screen that shows the US banking system's usage of the discount window. And it's kind of a scary chart because it shows that right now, the US banking system is using the discount window more than it was in 2008. So why do you think that is the case? And is this the cause of alarm that it appears to be if you just take a look at the chart? Okay, two parts of the question. If we compare back to 2008, um, I, don't, I, I don't draw any concern from that fact, right? So you said uh, in 2008, banks didn't rush to the discount window the way they are now. I, I don't, that doesn't lead me to be more concerned now because uh, the reason that banks didn't rush to the discount window in 2008 was that there were giant problems, but the discount window wasn't going to solve them. So they, they, the Fed had to create, and this is what they did, starting after Bear Stearns, and then in, in a huge way after Lehman Brothers uh, in September of 2008, uh, mm -hmm. the Fed created whole new programs to accommodate that need, which the discount window wasn't suited for. Right, and so you know to follow exactly why that was um, is kind of a long story, I guess. But but the basic the basic version of it is that. Problems were showing up in securities markets, in dealer in dealer balance sheets, really, um, more than they were showing up on the banking system. So 2008 was a crisis of the securities-based financial system, uh, treasuries, repo, that kind of thing. And the problems, because of that, the problems showed up 
on securities dealers' balance sheets. Securities dealers didn't have access to the discount window at that time. And so the Fed had to create other programs to get the funds in a few different ways into the hands of securities dealers. So I would say it's not, uh, we can make the comparison and we might learn some things from the comparison, but simply saying discount window use now is high, discount window in 2008 was low, is not a reason to conclude that this crisis is somehow worse than 2008, which I don't think there's any reason, I don't think there's a reason right now to reach that conclusion. Right, and so you take a bank like JP Morgan, they have the commercial bank, you, you go in, deposit, withdraw money, you have your credit card, and then they also have a broker dealer where it does you know, markets to hedge funds, uh, it, it invests in securities, it, it will make markets and all sorts of interest rates products. During you're saying during 2008, it was Lehman Brothers, Bear Stearns, which were only the second part and not the first part that th- those were the types that had problems. And those broker dealers could not ask access the discount window like banks. Exactly. Exactly. The, the problem was, you know, kind of started out in mortgage-backed securities, especially subprime mortgage-backed securities. But at the height of the crisis, nobody could tell which ones were good and which ones were not good. So everybody sold everything because they were trying, uh, because they were trying to get out of positions that they couldn't, all of a sudden they realized they couldn't put a value on. In retrospect, you know, it turns out that a lot of those, even the securitized products were fine. They, they paid off in the end. Uh, but at the moment of the crisis, you couldn't tell. And so the dynamic was sell, sell, sell. Everybody's selling everything. Now, those um, securities transactions are often involved with a, with a repo financing, right? That's how securities dealers uh, raise the funds to hold their securities portfolios, is that they post those same securities as collateral in repo transactions. So when the value of the collateral was falling, it wasn't possible to raise them to, to borrow money in repo against any mortgage-backed security, not only subprime, but you couldn't borrow against any mortgage-backed security. And so the dealers couldn't do their job. So you had uh, you know, a couple trillion dollars worth of, of financial products that people were trying to sell and the dealers couldn't buy. So, the, so that whole part of the market broke down. Prices went crazy. They stopped meaning it. Prices stopped meaning anything, right? Because there was no one to buy. And the Fed and the discount window didn't solve the problem because those dealers didn't have access to the discount window. I believe, uh, and I'm going to have to check this, but I believe uh, rules about access to the discount window were changed. Uh, some of the special liquidity programs were basically just versions of the discount window that were directed at dealers, or they were ways to channel money to banks who would then channel money to dealers. So there were a few different, a few different channels. Uh, they were all about getting to the securities market piece, uh, which is where the liquidity problems showed up at that time. So, you know, this is a, I think, a, a, I'll just plug Minsky for one second here, right? Because um, from a Minskyan point of view, we're seeing liquidity problems. It's a scramble for cash. People have payments due and they're having trouble making them. And that is exactly the same in 2008. Right now, it was even similar in 2020 at the beginning of the pandemic. And, you know, you can look at and the crisis of 1975 that Minsky, uh, that Minsky wrote several hundred pages on in, in uh, stabilizing an unstable economy. You see the same thing over and over, but it's not always exactly the same story. In 2008, we had to think about repo. We had to think about securitization. We had to think about securities dealers. Uh, and it was a whole set, of, it was a whole set of, of concerns, which are relatively specific to that crisis. And now we're thinking about something different. We're in the banking system, not so much in the dealer system. Obviously, they're closely connected, but the way that it's showing up uh, is looks different. It's in different markets, um, and we have to watch different prices to see what's happening. Um, so, so you know, there's something about a liquidity crisis which is exactly the same and which repeats over and over. And at the same time, the institutions, the markets, the the derivatives, the prices that we need to watch, and what the Fed has to do in response, or other central banks have to do in response. It's not just you can't just pull out the old playbook and and repeat the whole thing. You got to learn, learn some lessons from the past, and then also understand uh, the current situation. It never it repeats, but it never repeats exactly. Do you think that the Federal Reserve's uh, bank term funding program is sufficient to stop the Minsky moment from happening and stop you know Domino B from falling on Domino C and and all the way to Domino Z? Look, I think. The big question is, uh, the Fed wants to keep raising rates. And, if, and we haven't talked at all about inflation, right? Uh, but that's still out there. Uh, inflation, US 
inflation measured by uh, whatever your preferred method is, you know, the, the Fed uses personal consu consumption expenditures, uh, is still high. So the Fed really doesn't want to lower interest rates, right? So background here is that the Fed's got interest rates pretty high compared to the uh, last couple of years and would like, to keep, would like to keep raising. So what they need is to not have the banking system collapse while they're doing that. Now, because they've raised rates, there's this big portfolio of unreal, uh, you know, position in unrealized losses sitting in the banking system. So the basic liquidity question is this. Can the Fed create circumstances in which they can hold rates? Ideally, I think the Fed would prefer to keep, to keep raising. We'll see what they decide to do tomorrow. But the Fed's bias is still towards raising because inflation is still high. So, uh, so they want to keep raising rates. And that's going to aggravate the, that's going to increase the unrealized losses on the securities problem. Okay. So you got this big securities unrealized losses that's out there. The question is, are banks going to have to realize those losses? Because if the answer to that question is yes, then all of a sudden there's a $600 billion hole in bank balance sheets, and that's a pretty big problem. Um, subprime crisis you know, is estimated at maybe $2 trillion to $4 trillion, something like that, right? Just very roughly speaking uh, for a sense of scale. So smaller, probably, but maybe there's other stuff we don't know about yet. So the Fed would like banks to not have to realize those losses. They don't have to realize them if they don't have, banks don't have to realize those losses if they don't ever have to sell the securities. And they don't have to sell the securities if their depositors don't ask for their money back all at the same time. So the factor I'm watching to understand whether this crisis is gonna, is gonna relent after, after a few more days or whether it's gonna accelerate is are there factors pushing more and more securities into this category where the losses have to be have to be realized? That happens when, you know, depositors run through the cash at a bank, and so somebody's got to sell something in order to raise more cash to meet the next depositor. Um, that's that's at least part of what's been happening at uh, First Republic. Mm -hmm. um, it happens in if you post the the securities at certain transactions, right? Then they have to get marked down to market value. So. Uh, so it's a kind of a question of nerves here, right? If if the banks can restore calm, the Fed can restore calm, and uh, and depositors don't don't continue to withdraw funds from banks, there's not any particular reason why there has to be a crisis just because of this unrealized uh, loss portfolio. And the cash will be there if we can all wait until until these securities mature, at which point they're very likely to pay at face value. And so the the the, the price that banks are putting on them is not incorrect. However, if, if people want their cash sooner and, and that demand for cash gets big enough, then you bring more and more securities into this, uh, into this category. So what would you see? Well, if BTFP rises a couple of weeks and then starts to fall, then, then it probably did its job. It bought a couple of weeks and, and sort of the system returned to some normal level of functioning. But if they have to raise the limit and then they have to raise the limit again, and then they have to raise the limit again, then that says, Banks are scrambling for cash, and that they they can't deal with these unrealized losses, and they're having to use that channel in order to move the the unrealized loss onto the Fed's balance sheet. And if that's accelerating, then that's that's a pretty strong indication that the crisis is worsening and not and not dying out. Hey there, sorry to interrupt. A lot of forward guidance listeners are not into crypto. If that's you please skip ahead, get back to the interview. Some Forward Guidance listeners are into crypto, some own crypto, a smaller percentage owning lots of crypto, and a much smaller percentage work at crypto hedge funds. If you're in those latter two categories, BlockWorks Research might be a good fit for you. BlockWorks Research is a research and data platform that analyzes governance, tokenomics, and models of interesting crypto projects, including new protocols. There's a lot of edge that can be gained from reading these reports. You can check out a sample report at www.blockworksresearch.com research and hit the free report toggle. If that is of interest, full subscriptions can be purchased at www.blockworksresearch.com sign dash up. You can also get 10% off using the discount code guidance10. Thanks, and let's get back to the interview. The bank that is at play now, the domino that is in question, is First Republic Bank. 
a bank whose credit losses historically have been extraordinarily low, similar to Silicon Valley Bank. However, they did have some interest rate risk because they made a lot of mortgages and, and bought some securities that yielded 2%, 3%. And they did so when inter- their cost of funding was you know, close to zero on deposits. Uh, they had a lot of business bank uh, banking, you know, a lot of which did not pay um, uh, interest. And now interest rates are at 4.75%. They had a bank run which uh, appears to have slowed down uh, and they've gotten funding from the, the federal reserve, the discount window, the federal reserve uh, bank term funding program, much more, I believe actually from the uh, federal home loan bank, cause they have, they have mortgages, which I don't think you can pledge. You can pledge mortgage backed securities, but not mortgages. And then they also got a $30 billion influx of deposits from JP Morgan, Goldman, all the other banks, a lot of whom actually probably received the deposits. Um, so it's exactly. you know, probably you know, ironic. Um, but that that funding is obtained now not at zero percent, but you know four point seven five percent on the discount window, five percent on the federal home loan bank, and those are used to finance assets that are yielding you know significantly less than that. Is that a problem for for banks? Yeah, it could be. Uh, it could be, but that is a problem for uh, that's a problem for the future, right? So the 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 thing about a liquidity crisis, and this is why we're all talking about this now, and this is why Minsky loved to write about all of the different liquidity crises that he lived through, is that it's all about right now. It's all about today and whether this bank can survive until tomorrow, right? And so the drama of uh, the drama of the FDIC swooping in on a Friday afternoon and over the weekend, you know, management gets fired and all this stuff, that's all about liquidity. That's about can you pay your bills tomorrow? The question of uh, whether whether you know their the the income from their asset portfolio is going to be enough to allow them to yield a profit or to cover their their deposit outflows over the next even the next month, much less the next six months or year, is uh, is not a liquidity question that's relevant right now. So the 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 sort of fascinating thing I would say about a liquidity crisis is that the present the concern about getting to tomorrow. Uh, becomes the overwhelming concern, and it doesn't even matter what is going to happen beyond that. We just have to get till the next day, uh, at which point the problems can be can be resolved. So I think a good a good outcome um, for the Fed and the FDIC and the and the Federal Home Loan Bank uh, for First Republic would be get them out of the headlines, get them to al- allow them to pay their depositors and arrange an orderly uh, buyout or resolution. Or or anything when it's not when it's not item one on the on the newspaper a month from now two months from now three months from now so between now and then it's just liquidity they may or may not succeed at that right and and so I want to one piece I want to pull out you just mentioned right that um, that you know First Republic was experiencing a, a a run people were pulling deposits out fast and a lot of those deposits as you said ended up at the at the big at the big banks because if you're worried about a small bank then you pull out your money it's got to go somewhere you transfer it to your account at JP Morgan where you feel like it's where you feel like it's safer rightly so but i wouldn't say i wouldn't say it's ironic right what happened next was that those big banks teamed up and they made a big deposit back in first republic so it's i it's not ironic what it's doing i would say is that it's they're providing a, a new financial channel and i think this is important right what they said was, we want to try to keep this bank from failing. Why? Because if 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 you start moving up the list of big banks, then you're getting closer to the big banks, right? So if First Republic fails, then who's next? Uh, so they wanted to keep this bank alive. And just like the Fed, they want to get it out of the headlines. So they just took the money and put it back in. Uh, so I would actually call it refinance, right? That they they had a new influx of deposits and they took the big banks took that and they said, we got all these funds coming in. We're going to put it into this bank to try to keep it from going under. And they did that. It does not yet look like they have been successful. It seems like maybe more is going to be needed. Um, and some I, I saw earlier today a couple of options being kicked around for that. I think we don't know yet what the end of that story is. Um, a likely outcome, I think, would be that First Republic gets wound down uh, over the next couple months. Um, if it happens fast, then that's kind of bad news for the system. If it happens even even a few weeks from now, that's good news, I would say. Something of attention now is the dollar swap lines 
that yep. the Federal Reserve has uh, engaged in historically that might look like they'd be in play now. So we're looking at the U.S. dollar swap lines to other central banks. And I, I think there was yep. an announcement on Sunday that the Federal Reserve would start reporting these daily instead of weekly. I don't I don't think the volumes are there. As you can see on the chart, nothing really to see uh, on March yep. 20. On March twenty first, twenty twenty three. But uh, are the guns sort of being reloaded? Do you expect the them to be to be fired, or is this sort of just a preliminary measure that you don't expect to be used? Uh, it's an interesting question. So let's just say quickly what what we have here. This is the the channels by which uh, the Fed can provide dollars to other central banks. Uh, you you do that when other uh, central other banking systems have. Uh, short-term financing issues in dollars and the fed is the one that can create massive amounts of dollars quickly so the fed does that channels it to other central banks who then channel it onto their own banking systems and this picture is uh you know it shows pretty clearly what this thing is good for that's 2020 that's the beginning of the pandemic where that big spike is and in a matter of uh of days the fed got 400 billion dollars out the door uh, a lot of it to japan a lot of it to the ECB and little bits to other to other central banks. Uh, it, it comes on like a switch, right? It's almost a binary thing that we don't have anything and then we have $400 billion the next day. There's not a lot of financial instruments in the world that can provide that level of funding uh, overnight like that. So we've seen a couple blips. Uh, the Swiss National Bank activated their swap line. That's the most recent thing that you can see. This week, the Fed announced so normally this is, you know, the, there's a, a weekly process by which money can be allocated. And it does see, if you zoom all the way in, you see that this actually does get used uh, in a very small way um, pretty frequently. In fact, the ECB has a pretty regular transaction and it's very, very small. Doesn't register at the scale that we're looking at here. Uh, but those are normally allocated on a weekly basis. And the Fed turned up the frequency there and they said it'll be daily right now. So, so these central banks can call any day of the week and ask uh, and ask for dollars and have those dollars in their account at the end of that day, close of business that day. Um, and I think they also made some efforts to line it up with time zones. So actually, you know, banks in Asia can do business at the middle in the middle of the night, U.S. time, which is the middle of the day, their time. So they're, they're trying to uh, they're trying to make these dollars accessible. So the question is, um, is this just preparing? And I think for the moment, I think it is, it's just a way of saying, okay, we're ready to go here. Um, and if there are liquidity needs, the world's central banks are all on the same page and lots of things could happen. But one thing that won't happen is that there won't be dollars. There will be dollars and they'll be all over the world, same day. So that uh, that is kind of a, a almost a formulaic statement at this point, because that's what they did in 2008. That's what they did at the beginning of the pandemic. And so I, I don't view it as a particularly surprising move. Um, what I don't know yet is what are the international dimensions of this crisis? We mentioned Credit Suisse, which is, which is based in Switzerland and is under the authority of the Swiss National Bank, who were uh, closely involved in, in the transaction getting Credit Suisse absorbed by UBS. We haven't heard so much yet about, about troubles in other banking systems in a systemic way. Um, so that's either because there aren't troubles elsewhere or it's because they haven't uh, spilled over into liquidity crises yet. And that's one of the big questions that I still, that I still have here. You know, uh, these unrealized losses on treasury securities, you know, that's not limited to bank portfolios. Anybody who holds, who holds a security uh, experiences a capital loss at market prices as interest rates rise. That's true of everybody's bond, por bond portfolio. So the question is just whether those losses become uh, a liquidity need and, and who they become liquidity problems for and when and how big. Um, and I don't think there's a, uh, you know, you've seen some finger pointing, right, about European banks saying, oh, but we're not gonna have that problem. Okay, uh, you say that and maybe that's gonna turn out to be true. But the problem is pretty deep and pretty systemic and, and pretty fundamental. It's about rising interest rates. It's not about, it's not about risk-taking behavior, although that's, that's where Silicon Valley uh, Bank, you know, they made some mistakes in terms of what risk they were, they were willing to bear and how they ran their business and so on. True. But the underlying problem is a systemic one, and that's not limited to the U.S. So is it going to boil over into a liquidity crisis? 
uh, uh, internationally, um, that's, that remains to be seen. And the swap lines are, is gonna be the first place where we see that for sure. Um, I, I, I try to keep this graph updated and what you are showing there is the same one that I have on my own computer right now. So, so as yet that's zero. Um, the data comes out with a little bit of a lag, so so you know we'll have to we'll have to follow it over the next couple of days um, to see if anybody is is using it. At the moment, uh, at the moment, I don't see I don't see anything beyond what I've just said. Right. For those listening, not watching on YouTube, yeah. Right now, the dollar swap lines are pretty close to zero, uh, but they've been ready they're they're ready to be uh, extended so dan if the problem really is only a, a problem of rising interest rates causing losses on the financial system particularly on you know long duration negative convexity portfolios the pro answer for the federal reserve is, is quite simple uh stop hiking interest rates we're recording the afternoon of march 21st right after market close and tomorrow the federal reserve will announce its fomc decision and later jay powell will uh, be uh, I was going to say interrogated, uh, asked questions by, by a series of reporters. And you know, I'm sure this they will be talking about the, the bank panic. Um, two weeks ago, the market's short-term interest rate market was projecting that the Federal Reserve would hike interest rates as high as 5.6%, 5.7%. Uh, now, do you think the Federal Reserve uh, is going to do 25 basis points tomorrow, a 25 basis point hike, get to 5% and then just keep it there? How... Uh, how much would do you think that would support uh, financial stability in, in, in the system? Yeah, yeah. Um, the Fed's between a rock and a hard place here, right? Because uh, their job, right, the, the, the Federal Reserve Act requires them to uh, fight inflation. And that's what they're doing. And they can't not do that. Uh, inflation is high and they're taking flack for that. And so they really cannot uh, take their eye off the ball there even though the thing that they're doing, raising interest rates, is not tightly coupled to inflation. They can't just bring inflation down just because they want to, uh, even by raising interest rates. There's, there's, uh, there's a lot of finance in between what they can do and what they're trying to affect. So Fed wants to keep raising, um, but now they've created uh, a proper financial stability concern, and they don't want to trigger a, a more widespread crisis. So, only one person knows what's going on in Jay Powell's head. But if I had to take a stab at figuring out what we're going to see tomorrow, what I would say is that I think one reading of everything that the Fed has done over the last few days, reacting pretty strongly, um, being along with the Treasury and the FDIC, being part of this, uh, of, of you know, extending the deposit insurance to pretty wide, uh, to all depositors of some of these banks, right? And, and even indicating, Yellen indicated today that that might still be to come. That's definitely with the Fed's cooperation. So I think a lot of this very strong reaction to support financial stability is for the purpose of buying the Fed space to continue hiking. Uh, they wanna say, we got one tool to sort out all the financial stability concerns and we're not gonna take our eye off the ball in terms of inflation. And so we're gonna keep hiking. And so after all of the pretty dramatic moves of the last week, I would say the Fed would probably like to make a statement and the statement they would prefer to make is 25 basis points. 25 basis points. Uh, for tomorrow, for but tomorrow. keeping their options open. They're not saying the hiking cycle is, is done. I would, I would guess very much that their horizon is not beyond tomorrow at this point. Yeah. They're gonna, they want to raise because that is what makes the statement clear that they are still in hiking mode and that banks have to sort out their problems because rates are continuing, continuing to rise. But beyond that, they're also pragmatists, right? And so a lot of things could happen between now and the next meeting. And they're going to say it's data dependent and they're going to say they're watching financial stability concerns and they're going to say how seriously they take it. And, uh, and then we're going to do this for a few more weeks and we're going to see what happens. Um, what they would really, really love is for inflation to come down. Even if it came down below, below 5%, then you might start to be able to argue, well, this is falling. We could take a break from hikes, that kind of thing. Um, but the, the February inflation data was uh, not super encouraging in that respect. And so for the moment, and, and they're also taking pressure from international, the international community, right? The OECD made a statement, the ECB raised by 50 basis points. So they cannot, the Fed cannot appear to be outmaneuvered by, by uh, other um, international bodies and foreign central banks. 
So I think the, the bias is very much still towards tightening, but they're going to do it pretty gently. So I say 25 basis points. I agree with you. Uh, Dan, the book is Minsky. Your blog is soon parted, both of which are, are excellent. And on Twitter, you are at uh, DH Nielsen. Great to have you here. And uh, thank you for sharing your insights. Thank you everyone for watching. Thanks very much for having me, Jack. Forward Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at BlockWorks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined. Also, you can get 10% off to Permissionless 2023 and BlockWorks Research using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks again and be well.